on the first day of, of early voting in Virginia, there were supporters of the president who were blocking access to the polls. You know, that's an act of voter intimidation. Uh, and so those kinds of incidents occur. You know, it's important that people contact the election officials as well as contacting election protection at one eight six six hour vote Professor Gilda Daniels is a nationally recognized voting rights and election law expert. She served as a deputy chief in the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division voting section under both the Clinton and Bush administrations. She has investigated and litigated cases involving the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the National Voter Registration Act, and other voting statutes. Just last week, she, together with a group of civil rights lawyers, one relief for Virginia voters after the state's online registration tool failed on the final day to register. In Professor Daniel's first book entitled Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America, published in January 2020, she sounds the alarm to the crisis of voter suppression happening right now. So I have to ask you about the litigation this week in Virginia because we are recording on October 16th, and what happened is real-time litigation for the right to vote. Three days ago, on October 13th, Virginia's online voter registration system broke down hours before the deadline to register. You and other lawyers representing organizations stepped in filed for injunctive relief in court in Virginia. Can you tell us about that litigation um, and what tool in -hmm. the lawyer's toolbox did you use to change access to the vote for Virginians? Well, I can also, and I can also reflect on the week before uh, where we filed a lawsuit in Florida for the very same reason. So in Florida on the last day of voter registration, its system went down and we filed a temporary restraining order and uh, it was converted to a PI. So for listeners who are not lawyers, a PI is a preliminary injunction, which is an action taken by the court to restrain a party from taking certain measures during the pendency of a case. In this case, it's extending Virginia's voter registration deadline. And uh, arguing that our partners and plaintiffs in um, the state of Florida were certainly being denied and that there was an undue burden in regards to their ability to access the voter registration. In the Florida case, we had a you know, we had our filings and we had a hearing and the court essentially said that the court said, this is a quote from the decision, that the state failed its citizens and said essentially that Florida just seems to not be able to get itself together. The last quote from the opinion talks about, you know, know, we're in Florida and we've been able to put people on the moon, but haven't been able to run an election smoothly. And then he says it's not rocket science. But he ruled against us. (laughs) It was like, hey, how can you rule against us when you're telling us? Essentially said that it would cause confusion to reopen the voter registration portals and people wouldn't understand. And it's, you know, 30 days from election. Let's let the supervisors of elections, what registrars are called in Florida, let's let the supervisors of elections, you know, focus on getting it right since they can't seem to get it right. So that was two weeks ago, the week of October 9th. Yes. 
two weeks ago. So this week, last day of voter registration in Virginia, the system goes down. Advancement Project, we partner with, with groups on the ground to create power. And it was our groups on the ground that sent us the email saying, hey, system's down, last day of voter registration. People can't register. What can we do? And so we you know, worked with, with Lawyers Committee, Civil Rights Under Law, and Advancement Project filed a lawsuit on behalf of partners in uh, Virginia. We asked for a 48-hour extension, and the court granted it. And so we had to have the whole hearing on standing and its jurisdiction as well as whether or not we could meet the preliminary injunction standard or whether there was irreparable harm and uh, did, what, did we have a likelihood of success on the merits. And the court ruled um, that we did. So we were very, very happy about that. And the other thing that was great about the Virginia opinion is that we had the hearing at 9 a.m. And the court said, by 1130 Division of Elections, I need you to send your press release informing everyone that the system is back up and working and people are able to register through 1159 on October 15th. So so it is great to see in an order, you know, a judge saying we have to make sure that people know that the system is back up because what happened in Florida, they said, OK, we're going to give you another seven hours. And they did that from 12 noon to 7 p.m. And people were like, what? (laughs) And so the system crashed again at 5 p.m. Because that's when everybody gets off work. And, you know, court was like, why didn't you give them until midnight? Why didn't you do these things? And so we were trying to get them to do those kinds of extensions. Well, it's a good example of um, just how lawyers and the court systems are really functioning and sort of like the foot soldiers and the war for voting rights, um, that this kind of uh, litigation actually makes a real tangible difference for the 20,000 voters in Virginia or in Florida who weren't able to register, but now who are. You're amazing. But let me talk to you about your book. One thing that really struck me about your book was that you were able to tell the story of voter suppression through the lens of your grandmother's life. (laughs) And in particular, you talk about the 2000 election and the votes being too close to call mm-hmm. and your grandmother having this perspective that things were really slipping backwards. And she's not a person, like you said, who followed Supreme Court law or what the state of politics were really, but she's a person who has lived through Jim Crow laws. <laughs> through segregation, through sharecropping, and even the Great Depression. The Great Depression. <laughs> Can you tell me why you chose to tell the story of dis- discriminatory voting practices through that lens? Well, there seem to be cycles to voter suppression. And those cycles last about 100 years. And in talking to my grandmother, and I, you know, she lived to be 99, And she was born in 1919, the year before the 19th Amendment was ratified. And seeing that in her 100 years, that her experience with the right to vote was really cast in large part because of where she lived and the color of her skin. And then looking at the right to vote in this country, I could go to the founding fathers and see that from the beginning, there were these uh, clear demarcations as to who can register, who can vote, right? In the beginning, it was only white men who owned property. 
it will take a civil war in almost 100 years from the all men are created equal <laughs> and the civil war amendments in the 15th amendment, which said that you cannot discriminate based on race. And then it would be almost another 100 years from the civil war amendments to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So I saw that there were these cycles of progress and regress. So, you know, there's many other stories of, of individual people throughout your book. One of them that struck me was the story of 92-year-old Viviette Applewhite. She marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the right to vote for the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. What made her story stand out to you and, and what, uh, what point were you hoping to make in telling her story in your book? Well, I wanted to humanize uh, voter suppression because we often we see all this data and we're so uh, wedded to algorithms and analytics these days that I think what gets lost is that these are real people who are being denied the right to vote. And so I think certainly Ms. Applewhite's story, which was she was the named plaintiff in a Pennsylvania case that was challenging the voter ID law in uh, Pennsylvania. And her experience that you know, she had actually marched with Dr. King to try to secure the right to vote. And here she was in her latter years, not having the ability to cast a ballot because she didn't have a birth certificate. How, what is that? <laughs> and so just, so, so, so certainly for what I hope to convey was, you know, to, to people who say, well, everybody has a voter ID or, you know, we need to have these mechanisms in order to make sure that you are who you say you are. And so, you know, to demonstrate the links to which people have tried to secure the right to vote and then to see the barriers that are continually placed in front of them to access the right to vote. And, you know, it really struck me how um, targeted that was as a race-based discrimination in part because her story was that she couldn't get a birth certificate because when she was born, Black Americans, people of color could not access the uh, hospitals and the same system that white Americans could. (laughs) And so those government-issued documents just simply weren't available to her when she was born. Right. Right. And you know, if you were born by a midwife, um, you know, my grandmother was not born in a hospital either. Right? You didn't go to the hospital. I mean, I, I, when I was, I grew up in Louisiana, I didn't go to the doctor. I was born at the charity hospital, <laughs> right. At the UAP long hospital. <laughs> and so it's, you know, so yeah, a lot of people didn't have access to hospitals and, and, you know, there are other stories of persons who were who certainly had difficulties in securing the documents. But I thought Miss Applewhite's story was uh, exemplary of certainly the, the role that people have to take in order to get the right to vote. I think her story gives us a nice way as well to talk about the Voting Rights Act. Um, when she marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the result of their efforts was ultimately the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which was meant to give teeth enforcement ability to the 15th Amendment, to the 19th Amendment, to secure 
the ability to vote for African-American voters in the South where states were um, enacting and implementing race-based discriminatory voting practices. And what we see for her is that the erosion of the Voting Rights Act over time, um, such that she had more protections earlier on, closer to 1965, than she was experiencing when she had to file suit in Pennsylvania. Um, let's talk about Shelby County versus Holder, because that seems to be this pivotal moment where um, the Voting Rights Act used to mean one thing, and mm -hmm. then it meant another. Um, can you help explain for our listeners how Shelby County came before the court and how the court's decision in Shelby County changed the ability to protect the right to vote? Well, I'll have to give you some background on the Voting Rights Act itself, right? So the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. Attorney General Katzenbach said to Congress, as well as to the president, that he needed more robust authority to address voting discrimination. And it, it was after the scene that we refer to as Bloody Sunday, when recently passed away uh, Congressman John Lewis and Reverend Hosea Williams led a group of marchers across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They were marching from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama to demonstrate the issues around voter registration for Blacks in the South, but certainly in Alabama. So as they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, as we've seen the scenes of the horses and the police officers who beat them and pushed them back and they were unable to continue the march. That scene was one that many attribute the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. President Lyndon Baines Johnson called the legislation monumental. It had two primary provisions. Section two of the Voting Rights Act is a nationwide prohibition against discrimination in voting based on race and uh, language ability. Section five of the Voting Rights Act provided that if, if a jurisdiction had a disenfranchising device like a poll tax, literacy test, grandfather clause, or other device in place, and uh, less than 50% of its eligible persons were registered to vote, then that jurisdiction was required to submit all of its voting changes to either the Attorney General of the United States or the District Court for the District of Columbia. So with Section 5, you had these covered jurisdictions, which were essentially the southern states. But those jurisdictions had to submit any changes, whether it was moving a polling place across the street or a congressional redistricting. Uh, and this, certainly while I was at the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice would receive approximately 5,000 submissions a year, 5,000 submissions a year, which would equate to about 14 to 20,000 changes. And this is a, on an annual basis. Certainly if there's a, a if it was a year redistricting, which we'll soon have, that's when you get closer to the 20,000 number. In 2013, the United States Supreme Court in its Shelby County versus Holder decision decided that the triggering formula, if less than 50% of your eligible voters were registered to vote or you had a disenfranchising device, the Supreme Court said that that formula was outdated. And essentially that was the end of section five. 
And so because of that, jurisdictions could now implement their changes without federal oversight. We recently saw an example of why Section 5 is needed in Texas. Very recently, the governor of Texas announced an edict that only one drop box for mail-in ballots would be allowed per county. Now, Texas has more than 250 counties. And one of those counties, Harris County, where Houston, Texas is, is the third largest county in the country. Harris County had said that it would have 12 drop boxes, but the governor is now saying that they can only have one. Texas was a Section 5 covered jurisdiction. But because we don't have Section 5, the governor can now just say, hey, you can only have one drop box, and then you have to use Section 2, which is the nationwide prohibition against discrimination, to litigate, which advocacy groups have done. But, you know, it's gone from the trial court to the appellate court. We keep inching closer and closer to the election day. And the election officials just want to know what can they do. But certainly announcing that all 250 plus counties can only have one drop box is absurd. And certainly that's the kind of voting change that Section 5 would have at least provided an opportunity for notice to the community, as well as a review by the federal government to ensure that it was not retrogressive. But without Section 5, you don't have that. You have legislatures just making decisions based on anecdotes and other, maybe even some instances being politically driven, making these decisions. And then you have advocacy groups and lawyers utilizing what's left of the Voting Rights Act under Section 2 to try to curtail those efforts. Yeah, I I think that that is such a strong example um, in Texas. Abbott announced this edict on October 1st. It went, like you said, to the the district court and U.S. District Court, then to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said it was okay. He could do Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and then and then just yesterday, I saw there was a Travis County judge, that's Austin, Texas, on the county level, ordered an injunction based on this organization, Anti Defamation League's application for relief. Just as like a legal question, how is it that the county judge is now able to make a decision providing relief that the Fifth Circuit said was not available? Well, I have to look at that. That was a, so it was a state court decision. Travis County Judge. Mm -hmm. Travis County Judge. The plaintiff was the Anti-Defamation League. It's something I just noticed last night when reviewing the current state of chaos in Texas. Right. What probably happened, I haven't seen those pleadings or that order, is that the Anti-Defamation League must have utilized some aspect of state law (laughs) in their, you know, as you know, in their state courts, instead of using uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act or some other some other aspect of the federal law, but I have to look at that. And so, and and I think that's also exemplary of why Section 5 and certainly why the Voting Rights Act is needed because you have this piecemeal litigation, whereas if we still had Section 5, then the state would submit that law and the attorney general would determine whether or not it was retrogressive. And then we're done. Right. So, so for example, if I live in Austin, Texas, I might now see a drop box in my neighborhood so that I don't have to go drive an hour to drop my ballot. Whereas in Houston, Texas, I might have to drive two hours to the singular drop box to place my vote and wait in line for 
who knows how many hours along with the millions of other Houston residents to actually place my vote. So there's just really no uniform standard. I can't guarantee that what my voting looks like is the same that your voting looks like. Um, And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the media are these pictures and anecdotes of people just waiting in hours long Mm -hmm. lines in Georgia and North Carolina and Texas um, to place their vote. Some are saying that that's this showing of enthusiasm. What do you say, Professor Daniels? Well, long lines are not new. Certainly communities of color have been the miners canary for decades. Long lines serve as an example of voter suppression. And people are like, oh, no, it's, you know, people are just so excited and it's getting high voter turnouts. Like, no, 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 there are two machines in this, this neighborhood versus, you know, a predominantly white neighborhood that has 10 machines. We can do better. You know, I think it's also worth noting that there is a discrimination based on class as well. If you're an hourly wage worker, if you can't afford childcare to watch your children while you go place your ballot, the difference between no wait and an hours long wait is the difference between voting and not voting for you. Well, I think it actually, and you know, people are talking about people are enthusiastic, but actually I think it discourages voters for those reasons that you stated. That, you know, for everyone who's looking at that saying, yeah, I got to get ready and, you know, plan my vote. And other people say, I cannot take four hours, five hours. I think there was a voter in Georgia that waited 11 hours. I saw that. We can do better. We can do better. And certainly long lines for quite some time served as an example for suppressive tactics that are used to hinder, thwart, deter people from voting. And it wasn't, and it wasn't, let's be honest, it wasn't until we saw white folk in Wisconsin standing in line for the presidential preference primary that we were like, oh, wait a minute, long lines are an issue. No, long lines have been an issue for at least a decade. And uh, folk have been sounding the alarm saying that we need to do better and that these election officials need money for machines, They need money for printing. And we have a Congress that has the ability to provide this kind of assistance, but has neglected to do so. Well, let's talk about also how those, what you have called leaner, more covert, but just as effective suppression tactics weigh in on the idea of voter intimidation. Mm -hmm. Um, When and how is voter intimidation showing up in your perspective? (laughs) <laughs> well, in this election, on the first day of, of early voting in Virginia, there were supporters of the president who were blocking access to the polls. You know, that's an act of voter intimidation. Uh, and so those kinds of incidents occur. You know, it's important that people contact the election officials as well as contacting election protection at one eight six six hour vote We have a concern about uh, vote intimidation, widespread vote intimidation, particularly when we have an administration that calls for paramilitary poll watchers, for people to actually come to the polls to make sure. What are they looking for? I mean, I've, I've worked in election protection. I've done federal observer work as attorney and deputy chief in the civil rights division. And have you know, seen vote intimidation, right? Where in jurisdictions, poll workers telling people that you need to learn the language, not providing language assistance in the, in the way that they should. You've seen black and brown people being asked for ID in a jurisdiction that doesn't require ID. And then the voter intimidation, you've seen police cars in front of predominantly black polling sites. 
But again, this isn't this is a new this is Bull Connor standing in the courthouse door telling blacks that they cannot register to vote. Right. Bull Connor was a sheriff in Alabama. Okay, I want to repeat that because that was an important, I think, PSA for our listeners. If you're experiencing an act of voter intimidation, you can access resources to protect the vote by dialing one eight six six our vote. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll be connected with your local Secretary of State's office, your local law enforcement who can step in and assist you real time. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is the concern about whether the Department of Justice is an enforcement body on some of the the federal protections that we have against voter intimidation. One thing that you say in your book during your time at the Department of Justice at the Civil Rights Division working in the voting section is that attorneys were routinely reprimanded for seeking to enforce, follow, and advocate for enforcement of the federal voting rights laws. Um, Is that something that you still believe continues today and who is most affected by that politicization? Well, the politicization certainly happened during my stint in the Department of Justice during the Bush administration. I think what we're experiencing now is is far worse. <laughs> um, I think in the four years, I don't think it's brought one Section 2 case in these, in these last four years. Where's the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act? I don't see it. But what the department has done is, you know, sent letters to election officials essentially saying, you need to make sure that your list maintenance procedures are up to date, which essentially is encouraging them to purge voters. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I've worked with people who've been in the Department of Justice and still, and they're still in the Department of Justice and in the voting section that have been there for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So they've been able to ride the tides, right? They're like, okay, presidents come for four years or eight years, and then there's another one. <laughs> but it, it was certainly something that that people talked about when I was there, it was that they'd never seen their work get politicized because it was essentially enforcing the federal voting rights laws. We also have the, the impact of Shelby County versus Holder because under the Obama administration, they opined that the decision in Shelby County did not allow them to send federal observers to jurisdictions where the department did not have a consent decree or a court order. So essentially, I don't think you can look to the federal government for that kind of support in this election and haven't been able to for the last uh, few years. Now, in theory, the Department of Justice is not a partisan body. Yes. Um, it It is not the president's personal lawyer. It is our lawyer. What is it going to take in your mind to rebuild the public's trust in that tenant? Ooh, my, my, my. So what will it take to rebuild trust? And maybe there's no easy answer. There is no. Well, there there is no easy answer. I mean, a lot of things are going through my mind and a lot of them certainly have stemmed to this election. And... Um, there is a letter that former DOJ attorney signed saying that Bill Barr needed to resign. <laughs> it was like thousands uh, signed the letter. And you know, we have to remember that, you know, the career attorneys, tens of thousands of career attorneys who took the oath 
um, to uphold the laws and uphold the Constitution and these federal laws, you know, they still want to do that work. And when I say politicized, we're talking about the people who, who make the decisions about what cases are investigated, what cases are filed. When that becomes political decision versus a justice decision, a decision that's premised upon justice, then that's when that's when we we have to remove these political ideologues and get our focus back on what our true purpose should be. Um, one mantra of yours that I love is educate, legislate, <laughs> litigate, and participate. Yes, you got it. I got it. Um, I love it. And I'm going to put that somewhere that I can see every day because um, <laughs> that's certainly words to live by. Um, your, your book, I think, nails an education piece that I think is important for all. And I, you know, I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of your book. It's called Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. It gives such a great overview of the more than the last 100 years of Mm -hmm. voter suppression tactics in this country and the laws that apply to them, but through the lens of these um, narratives and storytelling that I find just incredibly compelling. Um, Thank you. What, yeah, you're welcome. It's well-deserved. Um, one fact that I think is in your book, but is often glossed over and not well understood is that there's actually no constitutional right to vote in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, what legislation has been proposed to change that? So there is no explicit right to vote in the United States Constitution. There are more amendments that address the right to vote than any other right um, but again, those don't give the right. They say that you can't take it away for these reasons. Um, and so there has been a movement of sorts to get an explicit right to vote in the United States Constitution. Advancement Project National Office has been one of those organizations that has been asking for an explicit right to vote uh, and a right to vote amendment. Also, Demos is another organization, I believe, Fair Vote and others are now also saying that there needs to be an explicit right to vote in the Constitution. Senator Dick Durbin presented a joint resolution a few weeks ago that provides an explicit right to vote that says you have the right to vote. (laughs) And it also addresses the uh, right to vote of, of formerly incarcerated persons and would provide uh, the right to vote for uh, persons previously convicted of a felony, which which is a whole nother crazy quilt of laws that we didn't even get to discuss. H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 also address a number of issues relating to the right to vote. And there's also the Election Assistance Commission that... Um, that's a, it's a federal agency that's supposed to provide best practices and also provides funding for um, machinery and other election administration issues that, you know, it's essentially been underfunded and underpersoned uh, over the last um, more than four years. Um, so, you know, we have resources, but getting an explicit right to vote in the Constitution is a is a long uh, road, but maybe, maybe not. I mean, we're seeing some changes that are happening fairly quickly. Maybe, maybe that is something that people will uh, keep in mind because it wasn't until 2000 that the Supreme Court told us that we didn't have the right to vote, that we didn't elect the president, right? (laughs) 
No, you don't elect the president. It's the elector. It's from the electoral college that elect the president. People are like, what? We don't elect the president? Um, so that, that was certainly around the time that the push for a right to vote amendment began. Uh, and I think that this election is is moving it even further ahead. So maybe we'll, we will see some movement in this uh, area. At the top of the show, we talked about the two cases you litigated this month. But there's another voting case that might have real significance for everyone coming up, and that's the case of Brnovich versus DNC. That's on appeal from the Ninth Circuit, where the Ninth Circuit found that Arizona's restrictions hurt minority voters and are in violation of the Voting Rights Act. That's good news. Mm -hmm. But the bad news is that it allowed those restrictions to stay in place for the November election while the litigation continues. Um, what's your opinion of how the makeup of the Supreme Court will determine the outcome of that case? And what are the anticipated effects on voters of color? So I, so I can speak very generally about any litigation that's going to the Supreme Court right now and what that, what that looks like. Right now, any litigation that's going to the Supreme Court in this Purcell rule, right, is going to be utilized. They're going to say it's too close to the election. We're not going to make any changes. We're not going to speak to this. And so... Um, you know, so that, that's certainly a problem, but I think, you know, going forward in the, the makeup of the court certainly, I think solidifies the idea that we may have had an over-reliance on the courts, particularly on the federal courts, uh, and that we're going to have to use all of our tools in the toolbox. We're going to have to use policy and media and legislation, (laughs) um, in addition to litigation, um, and, and because we have less of the Voting Rights Act to work with than we once had, that you know we're going to have to use all the tools we have in the toolbox. And I think we'll have to be very strategic about the kinds of cases that are heard or that we take to the United States Supreme Court. Well, I could talk to you for a whole other hour. Um, this has been extremely illuminating. The final parting note I wanted to to have with you is the last word of your of your mantra is participate. And we have so many communities right now really hurting from the, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and others, and so many of our communities swelling up in protest. Um, yesterday, I heard you say that voting is the way to move from protest to power. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there anything uh, as a final note that you'd like to add to make sure that 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 message is complete and that our listeners know the power of the vote? Your vote is power, uh, and that it gives great power for for young people who are concerned about the murder of Ahmed Arbery, who are in Georgia, and concerned that the sheriff didn't arrest the murderers for months, or that the county attorney didn't press charges against them for months. In Georgia and other states, but particularly in Georgia, you have the ability to to vote for a sheriff. You can vote for the county attorney this year, right? In a few days. And so it's the importance of looking at your power in regards to voting in elections that really impact your life, right? Certainly the presidential election is, is impactful, but it's those other positions in Georgia, they're electing two senators this year, right? And so we have to recognize that we have to look beyond election day. The work will continue to happen after election day, 
uh, but we have to use our vote so we can demonstrate our power. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, these these elections matter. Your local elections matter. And uh, Professor Daniels, um, it has been phenomenal speaking with you. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on historical and ongoing barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit the website for the Oregon Historical Society at ohs.org and oregonfederalbarassociation.org. I am Celia Howes, the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. Gabriel Granillo is our editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.